Hi, and welcome to Health, Wealth, and the Pursuit of Happiness, a podcast that will empower you to live a more inspired life and find real freedom. Each episode, Mark Dale Mazer and Aries Jimenez discuss best life practices, covering topics ranging from health and well-being, to true wealth and our relationship to money, to understanding what real freedom and happiness really is. They provide tools and a system for helping you live a balanced, authentic life in complete harmony with your mind, body and soul. Welcome to our listeners in podcast land. Mark Dale Mazer here. And Aries Jimenez. And look, we've arrived at episode 13. How exciting is that? Very, very exciting. So on this episode, we've got some pretty cool things planned. The coolest thing is we have the master of life planning, the godfather of life planning. George Kinder will be our guest on today's show. George is the founder of the Kinder Institute out of Boston. It is through the Kinder Institute that the registered life planning designation is achieved. And in George, we not only have a seasoned planner, but you're going to hear about George's story and how he got into the business and what life planning really means for him and how he got started in life planning specifically. And you're going to learn he is quite a diverse, interesting, deep individual. And we're really excited to bring this to you. But before we do so, there's a couple things that we want to do as we're wrapping up season one. So Aries and I wanted to take a couple minutes, which will probably turn into several minutes, and talk about what intentions we each have or had when we set out to do this podcast. And then for each of us, what's the one thing we want to make sure that our listening audience takes away from the podcast? And so I'm going to open with that question to you, Aries, my friend and colleague here. What intentions did you have when we set out to do this podcast? My intention for the podcast and why I was so excited was really to share this process called life planning. And for me, it's really about having a framework to make life decisions on. We all make life decisions big and small. How do we know we're making the right decision or the wise decision? And for me, that's what life planning is, is all about for me personally. It's, you know, once you're, once you're clear as to what you really want, then that should drive every decision that you make. And, you know, going through the process that we have, I know it's really helped me a lot with kind of just getting clear as to what I want out of life and how I should be going about it. And so that's... That was my intention going in and obviously for, for personal growth too, which you and I have discussed, Mark, I've grown so much recording these episodes and, um, and just sharing what's in our hearts and sharing with the audience kind of what life planning and living an inspired life is all about. Indeed. Anything more to that? Not in terms of intention. I would say to address your second question is kind of what's my one thing? For me, it's, it's the importance of living a spirit-led and driven life. Throughout the episodes, I've kind of shared kind of my background, being a Christ follower. And, you know, I know people that are listening to these episodes or to the podcast, I mean, everyone has different backgrounds in terms of, 
kind of their spirituality, if if you will. And I know for me, it definitely resonates and just importance in just knowing that uh, we are spiritual beings. And if we just remind ourselves that the best way for us to live out our lives is to be spirit led. And what does that actually mean for each and every single one of us? I think that's what the, the journey that we, that we call life is all about. Um, and we're all at different, different stages and different places in the journey. But I think ultimately it's, uh, it's to live an inspired life. And that to me means being spirit led. Cool. What about you, my friend? What intentions did you have and what's your one thing? Well, I had several intentions when I started on this podcast. For me, as you know, very much part of my personal journey. The intention I had, number one, for somewhat of a selfish reason, was that I had hired a coach a while back. This is probably um, two, three, almost four years ago now that I think about it. She introduced me to someone by the name of Rachel Flower. And Rachel was beginning to do this work which was a consulting, advising type of work for individuals regarding helping to decode what their soul's work was to be on earth. It's based on a book by David Nijin, I believe is his name. Uh, You'll see all that information will be in the show notes. Something along the lines of your soul decoded. And so I went through this particular program. I was one of her first guinea pigs. And it was really... Very, very impactful. And one of the things that came up for me is that I need to be more expressive in the world. This was like a big deal. And I had somewhat always felt I had something more to say to the world but couldn't do it. I was extremely shy as a youth. And I can remember in second grade specifically being called upon by a teacher I did not like, Mrs. Collins. We did not have a good chemistry together. And... I remember being called on in her class and being completely, there must have been an experience with her that I felt unable to really express myself. I I felt disempowered for some reason, and I never really fully grew out of that. And so here I am looking at the results of the soul decoding work, and at the top of the list is to be more expressive. And I had already been listening probably for about a year or two to um, a handful of podcasts. It started with Tim Ferriss. I was familiar with his book, The Four-Day Workweek. And so I listened to his podcast and I really got into that. And that led to some other podcasts. And so by the time the soul decoding work thing came around, the word expression, and I just knew inside my deepest soul that that's truly a calling for me. And so I thought, what better place to do that than with a podcast? And so I, at that point, thought I need to do a podcast and pretty quickly came up with this name, Health, Wealth, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Health because it's something I'm passionate about and always been, and wealth because I've kind of been in the wealth business for 25 years, 30 years, one degree or another, but I've always been fascinated with really what that really means. And the whole relationship that we have with money. So that seemed to be kind of a catchy phrase, health, wealth. And then of course, happiness. Like what is this whole happiness quotient? What's the pursuit of happiness all about? And is that something you can really pursue? So I just had a fascination with these subjects 
And I felt if I had a fascination with these subjects, I think there's a lot of other people that have the fascination with these subjects. And so I really didn't know what and how this particular podcast would really develop for me in my experience. But like you, I found right after the first three or four episodes that, wow, the greatest thing I'm getting from this is I'm exercising my expression muscle, but I'm growing. And I'm growing just by expressing. And of course, I didn't go very deep with the work with Rachel. I just had a list of nine things that I need to kind of pay attention to and to make sure that I'm aware of and and addressing. And beyond that, I didn't go much deeper, but I didn't realize the power of expressing on a microphone and then listening to yourself. It's quite an experience. And so it was a very profound experience on me. And so that was my primary intention when I set out. And I did feel that I had something to share with the world and that my intention is to just simply be myself and to share with the world what I feel is true, true for me, probably true for most people, if not all people listening. And that if I found ways and I found specific practices and ways of being in the world and of practicing life in the world, then let's share those things. And then life planning came along and I had another transformational experience with that. Probably one of the bigger ones I've had in my life, thanks to George and his training and his people um, and his community. And so this thing really became, you know, this calling for me. And so my intention is that people simply benefit at a very basic level, that somehow the needle moves for them as a result of this podcast that you and I are doing. And that the things that we're sharing actually are helping people and they can embrace those things and they can move through their lives practicing and implementing some of these practices. So that's pretty cool. And I feel really good that we're doing our best that we can do in that regard. That was my primary intention. So if there's one thing you'd want the audience to take away from this first season, what would that be? I think the one thing is to realize that the two most important questions that we each have to face for ourselves is number one, who are we? Who really are we? And that the answer comes from deep within. And the other question is, why am I here? I think these are two questions that everyone listening to this podcast should ask themselves. And I don't mean ask themselves like they're going to get an answer, but ask themselves with a deep curiosity and a deep wanting to really know the answer and know that once they put that out there, that the answer can be and will be forthcoming if they continue to set the intention that they want an answer to those two questions. So that to me would be the biggest thing, the one thing, which is kind of two things, but it is kind of one thing. It's the two questions. That's the one thing. Yeah. Clarity around that. Clarity around that. Who am I and why am I here? Yes. I'll also say one more thing because I want to reiterate with you that the best life to live is an inspired life. And as we know, the inspiration that we're talking about is a life that's led, as you said, from spirit. It's the only way to live. And when we find it, it's truly magical. And what I'm so excited about with George is he's living it that way. I mean, he 
for me as truly a, almost like a mentor, has modeled how one should live. And uh, I really look forward to diving deep. Yes. With George together and uh, learning more from his vast wisdom. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about George Kinder. He is Harvard educated, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that he has revolutionized financial advice for over 30 years. George has trained over 3,000 professionals in over 30 countries in the field of financial life planning. In 2003, he founded the Kinder Institute of Life Planning, and that was after he practiced as a life planning and tax planning practitioner. He is an accomplished author, and in his latest book, The Golden Civilization and a Map to Mindfulness, he draws on his over 50 years as a meditation practitioner and a student of mindfulness. And with that experience of training advisors globally, he challenges the basic concepts of economics. And he goes further in challenging our understanding of democracy and of space and the relationship to time and even our own hearts. I think what's unique about all of George's work, and I've said this before, and I will reiterate it here, that his work is all about bringing greater levels of freedom to the planet. In addition to the Golden Civilization book, George has also written The Seven Stages of Money Maturity, which was one of his early works on money. A great book, highly recommend it. We talk about it many times in the podcast, and it is in the show notes, along with Lighting the Torch and Life Planning for You, which is a life planning book for the consumer. And truthfully, it has been considered one of the seminal works in the burgeoning field of financial life planning in the industry. I shall continue with the accolades. George was the first winner of the Financial Planning Association's Heart of Financial Planning Award, which recognizes individuals who demonstrate commitment and passion in doing extraordinary work to contribute or give back to the financial planning community or the public. In addition, he's been named one of the 35 most influential people in financial services and one of the top icons and innovators in the financial planning industry. And here's another little tidbit which you may not have known about George. In 1975, he earned the bronze medal, which is third place in the National Uniform Certified Public Accountant exam in Massachusetts. So this is a uh, fairly smart dude. And so with that, I bring you George Kinder. Okay, George. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. It's an honor for both Aries and I to have you here. Well, it's always a pleasure to be with you too. It's been a great journey for me personally in the life planning world and the community from the very moment I stepped into the seven stages of money maturity workshop in Boston, mm. which was February of 2016. Yeah. So, and then from there, Hana for the evoke and the training. So really, really meaningful. And the reason we wanted to have you on this podcast is you are the godfather of life planning. 
And we wanted to hear from you about, one, your story and how you actually got started in life planning. The basis of the work is inspiration and freedom. And so you emulate that and you've modeled that. And I think it'd be a wonderful thing to start with your story and how this all began for you. Even as a young child living in the mountains of Virginia, correct? No, it was actually in the foothills of the Appalachians, just across the Ohio River from Wheeling, West Virginia. But it was definitely in in nature. So tell us a little bit about your young life and how you were developing and kind of what brought you to the actual life planning. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. I don't think I've ever been asked about my childhood, but the best year of my life was when I was three years old. And it was just an astonishing year when all kinds of things happened to me. I started experiencing the world in this extraordinarily vibrant way. I had visions. I asked profound questions about life, like a question that has haunted many philosophers from many traditions for many years, which is, why is there something? There should be nothing. You know, the, just thinking about the, the nature of death and the nature of rocks and the nature of numbers, the number zero. So these really deep questions were coming to me. So I was struck with life and I was mostly struck with the vitality of life and how that countered all of the stuff that said there shouldn't be anything. So I began to be really interested in living in an inspirational way when I was three or conscious of it. Wow! Yeah, that was just a a fabulous, fabulous year for me. I don't remember all the things that happened to me, but I, I saw visions in the sky. I saw, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, very unusual. And and some people might look and go, well, gosh, this guy's crazy. Yeah. But that was what what happened. Yeah. Really interesting. So as you began to grow and mature. Yeah. How did you find yourself sort of expressing and really being curious of how you can live into this experience that you've seen and questions that you've been asking? Well, I grew up on the edge of Appalachia in the, in the Appalachian foothills, and I loved where I grew up. It was a very kind of middle middle class town, very small town, so we knew everybody and very good kind of basic salt of the earth kind of values. And at the same time, my family was reasonably well educated and we had books and classical music. It was kind of stunning to be at home in the midst of all this culture. And at at some point, I began to get a little bit bored and my parents sent me off to school, sent me back east to a private school for high school. And that was really hard, really hard work because I was not prepared for that level of academic challenge. Was that why they primarily did it? Because they saw your intellect and felt you needed the challenge? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And it had been in, in their families a bit. So they had, they knew it and they knew that I would respond well to it, but it was very, very challenging. So it was actually a thrill when I got free of that life. And I went to college. I went to Harvard. And it was the 60s. And students ruled the campus. So it was really a sense of tremendous freedom. It was really much more about the students. We loved what we were learning. We respected the professors. But you know, it was a wild time. We were being conscripted to be sent away to military service. So it stimulated a lot of protest and a lot of freedom and a lot of feeling that what we did 
made a difference and that we had democratic freedoms and that it was important to exercise them. So I came into that with great enthusiasm and great excitement. Yes. I could see the foundational stones for freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Developing at an early age and continuing on. Yeah, I think absolutely. It began at age three and certainly all through my life. Freedom has been the most important thing. How do, how do we live it individually? How do we make it as accessible as possible for others? I mean, I, I was thinking this week, I was thinking about what is it that I want to teach my kids And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking two things. I want them to live the very best life, the most profound life that they can possibly live, to challenge themselves to live wisely and deeply. And at the same time, to challenge them to deliver something similar wherever they go to whomever they meet. So that's that feels like, you know, it's delivering freedom, it's delivering kindness, it's it's also living it. So I know a little bit of your story in terms of how you actually began your professional career coming out of college. Do you have a master's or a doctorate in? Well, I... I know you scored very high in your CPA tests. I yeah, I did. With I did. I placed, classes, placed right? third on the exam when I took it in, in Massachusetts. And prior to that, I'd been off the charts in mathematics and all my scores and everything. But I'd not been very good in, in verbal skills. And I think that was because I'd had trouble. My dad was not an easy dad. And so I didn't have great conversation with him. And I think I blocked all that. And that was true for five, six, seven years. Every test I took, I was you know, a little bit better than average. Mm-hmm. And then, so I, what I did was rather than major in math and economics at Harvard, I majored in English. And by the end of that period, I was really quite good verbally as well. So I came out of Harvard wanting to be a poet and my mother had been a Christian teacher, but on the sly, none of us knew it. She had her, a community that she led, and she was a deep, mystical, loving, dear, profound thinker. And But we none of us knew that she was a teacher. But all of us were kind of inspired. So I came out with a strong sense of ethics and of spiritual life, living a strong spiritual life, and wanting to live that life of meditation and writing poetry and, and painting. Of course, the reality was nobody was willing to pay me for what I wanted to do. So I had to make a living. So I went back and I went to graduate school in accounting. And I did well, in, as you noted, in the CPA exam. But I, it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I, I, didn't, I never finished. I, I was there. I had one more quarter to go and I abandoned ship. Oh, really? I didn't get my master's. I just left. And I left because I really longed to write poetry and and do my spiritual practice. So I created a tax practice. And you know taxes. Taxes are, you know, dominate you for a season. And so for a while, I worked part-time and I wrote and I painted and I made enough to just get by doing taxes. But I was good at that. What medium did you work in as an artist? In the early days, I did mostly watercolors, ink washes, some acrylics, but I also loved doing environmental sculptures. So Christo was someone who inspired me. And we did environmental sculptures sculptures throughout New England. I had a great partner who's now one of the greatest woodblock artists I know in America and probably the greatest woodblock art, artist in New England who was a partner of mine in this. So what is environmental sculpture, though? Well, it means taking whatever's there in, in nature. Like we, we threw a design across the Charles River 
and we brought down saplings from Vermont and hoisted them out from a bridge, from both sides of a bridge. And then we did some scaffolding and we strung these colored banners across the Charles River that you could see from the sky as you flew into Boston, that you could see all along the river. People driving on Starro Drive or Memorial Drive would see it. And we put it up for a day. How interesting. Yeah, so so we just did, you know, things like that that brought people brought joy to people's lives. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So you're working essentially part-time as an accountant, if you will? Yes. And and eventually I was good at it and so people demanded my service and I began to work more and more and more than I liked and then I began to create a business out of it and hired people and had partnerships and that oh, kind wow. of thing. Okay. Yeah. And you did the accounting for how long? I did 13 years worth of tax returns before I stopped that and moved just strictly to financial planning. Started financial planning within a few years of doing tax returns. Okay. And what led you to do the financial planning? Well, I, it was freedom, really. It was not my freedom, but I had clients come in. I don't know if you remember, but it was in the 70s that mo most financial services was product-driven. And so I'd have clients come in and they would be tax clients. And I'd ask them, you know, about their retirement plans and all of that, and it all sounded good. And then I began to notice that they were being sold tax shelters. They were making 50 grand a year, and they were sold tax shelters that were appropriate for people making high six-figure incomes. And those tax shelters, they were sold because there were roughly 30, 35% commissions it wasn't strict commission. There were these layers of upfront fees. And the consumer had no idea. My clients had no idea. And Mark, I got ticked off. It was like, I, no, this is wrong. And so I went and I decided, well, I need to set up, I need to do financial planning to, to be able to advise my clients who keep getting taken advantage of by brokers, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the initial early stage of financial planning, it sounds like you were being more the advocate for the client with respect to investment options yes, and such. And I already did taxes, so I already had the tax background. Yeah, and I was passionate. I joined, this was before tax accountants were yes, allowed we're to, sell to sell products. products. Yeah. So I entered on the fee-only side of things. Okay. And that was very important to me to oh, be- you were probably a pioneer in that. I was one of the original members of NAPFA, one of the first 50 or 100 members of NAPFA. Yeah, yeah. for sure. First year. So you did the combination of tax planning and financial planning for about how long? Well, I continued to do tax returns for a number of years. And then I didn't sell my mostly investment advice business, but it was a financial planning business, broad-based as well, until I wrote The Seven Stages of Money Maturity, until, I, until probably the year 2000, 1999 or 2000. So I was, I think I stopped doing taxes in the mid to late 80s, and then did another 12, 13 years of broad-based financial planning and, and lar with largely a strong investment focus. Yeah, okay. But it, was, it was, really became life planning pretty quick. Tell us a little bit about that. Like how, how did you evolve into that? And what did life planning actually initially look like? Well, you know, it was, again, it was this thing about freedom. I, I, you know, so at first I saw clients being taken advantage of by the traditional financial advice approach that was out there. And that really annoyed me. Not only annoyed, it offended me. I mean, it was, you know, it's profoundly offensive that people would be trying to get advice about money and they would just be sold products. And it's still happening today. It's a terrible thing. It's completely inappropriate. 
And then I began to realize, as you know, I'd had these tax clients for years. And I, for years, when I, I always thought of a tax client, I thought the way to do tax business was to know the client. I was one of those rare tax accountants who didn't just do the law and, you know, quickly ask you a few questions and do the, and the return was there. But I really got to know who my clients were. And a lot of my early clients, I was based in, in Harvard Square. And so I had a lot of professors. I had a lot of graduate students. But I also had all the early kind of new age community. So at one point, I had probably 500 of the 1,000 therapists in the Boston area were my clients. Wow. And the way that I got them was that I really studied what they were doing. I went to their workshops. I figured I got to get to know them in order to know what deductions would be appropriate for them. So I went and I learned a tremendous amount about empathy and about listening skills. So I was growing by learning who these clients were. And then what I discovered fairly early on was there was an incredible deduction that nobody was taking. And what was that? It was taking their personal therapy expenses, which were usually in the thousands of dollars, often in the five to ten thousand so dollars a on year, themselves with as a therapist. business expense. It makes sense, but nobody was doing it. They all thought it was it was a medical expense, and as a medical expense, it had all these limitations on sure, Schedule A. Sure. I put it on Schedule C. I got to reduce their self-employment tax. You know, there were no limitations on it. And as a consequence, every therapist in the Boston area came and got a tax return done by me. And I got to learn a lot from, from them. So the life planning came out of that in a way. I realized that listening was at the, at the heart. Okay. And in the, one of the first workshops I did at NAPFA, NAPFA is the fee-only, the largest fee-only organization. And at this time, it was revolutionary absolutely revolutionary. And one of the earliest workshops, one of the fellows gave a course on goals. And I just thought, thought well, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> and, and so I took the work that, the, that he started me on, and I went and studied different goal approaches, and then designed the three questions and the heart's core grid and that I know you're familiar with yes, and work yes, with, yes, yeah. and the goals for your life. And then many years later, I, I figured out ideal day, ideal week, ideal year were great exercises as well. And basically, I just went to town with it because what I knew I wanted to deliver people into was their dream of freedom. Yeah. So how could we get at a dream of freedom? And part of that was inspired by seeing these tax clients come in and people who had been there in the in the 60s, I have to say it, but it was in the 60s that, where they were inspired with living a different life. And then they got caught. And they got caught by their kids. They got caught by their spouses. They got caught by the material needs of their life of needing a station wagon instead yeah. of a bug or or <laughs> you know whatever it is of needing a house and having to pay the mortgage of then the education they got caught by all the things and what happened was it, it isn't that those things aren't important in all of our lives they are but the question is what's most important and i could see that they were graying you know i thought of it as the graying of america the graying of my peers of my mates and they were all losing their fire for why they were on this planet and i thought gosh you know we're all we're only on this planet once as far as we know yes unless you live in india you know and then they get to come back again and again but most of us in america we think well we're here once and that's it yeah so i thought people ought to really live 
with fire, with vitality, and for what they can most profoundly accomplish in life. Mm -hmm. So that was my passion. Yes. And that's where life planning, that's where life planning came from. Yeah. Wow. That is very cool. What did, what did you call yourself as a business once you started doing the life planning? Did you still market as a an accountant? Yeah, no, I call myself a financial planner. And a that financial was planner. One of the first things, you know, you know the great journalist Bob Varys, the radical journalist yes. in the oh, financial yes. planning area. Oh, yes. So he saw me deliver one of my first speeches in financial planning. And he came up to me and he did this big series of interviews with me. I think there were three articles that came out of it. And he said, What do you call yourself? And I said, A financial planner. And he said, no, no, you got to give yourself a name, kinder. And I said, well, gee, I know that's a financial planner. And he said, well, what about lifestyle planner? Oh. And I said, it's not about it's, style, no, Bob. Right. <laughs> exactly. This is about real I life. I this see is you as a lifestyle deep planner. stuff. This is profound. And so it was in that interview, actually, that I came up with the term of life planner. Yeah. This is about a person's life and taking that seriously. And really, that's what money is meant to be about. It's meant to deliver us into our dream of freedom and give us access to how to accomplish it. It's meant to be kind of a tool, but our relationship to it is meant to be extraordinarily vital, alive, entrepreneurial, engaged. You know, whether we're meditating in a cave or we're taking care of our kids or we're engaged in our community or we're creating a business of our own we're meant to be alive with passion in our life and money is one of the major facilitators with it and if it's not it's a block so we need to know how it works so that we can become that person that we really want to be yes yes indeed and so you sell your business or at least the investment side yeah, of the business right and at what point did you shift from the consumer work as a life planner to decide to begin training other advisors. And what was driving that? Because I, I would imagine the work was very gratifying. It was, yeah, yes and no. It was extremely gratifying delivering clients into freedom. What I didn't like was that even with all of that, there's this aura around being a financial planner, being in the financial services industry, where the trust level of all of us, even the best of us, is at about 14% compared to a nurse or a doctor who's up in the 70 to 90% level. Well, I knew I was delivering 70 to 90% and most of my clients did, but you know, there were always some that had some doubts that would question. There were new clients coming in who wouldn't necessarily know and they would have questions. And I grew tired of that, busting through that trust barrier again and again. And so I thought, you know what? I can leverage this. I can make this delivery of freedom. I can give advisors everywhere the model for how to deliver their clients into freedom. I can change consumers' attitudes much more powerfully by building a movement of advisors who do this well, who deliver with trust, who live with integrity and deliver freedom. Yeah, and more importantly, reach more lives. And reach many more lives many more lives. And now we have advisors who've studied with me in 30 countries on six continents yeah, that's really all over exciting. the world. Yeah. yeah, Amazing. So you made that switch when? Well, it started in 93, 94 when I gave my first speech and then created a think tank to think about these issues. And then I sold my business in 99 or 2000 and fairly quickly created the Kinder Institute yes. out of that to actually deliver 
a designation called the Registered Life Planner designation, mm -hmm. where I knew that people would really be delivering people into freedom. And was your training similar to how you're doing it now? What was the early yeah, training the, like? Yeah, the early training, I, I started with the seven stages work because that was my first book. And that's more of a psychology. And that was very popular because psychology is so popular. So people really loved it. But what I realized was that advisors were trying to do more psychology than they were actually delivering clients into freedom. And there's a, a real difference between what we do and what a psychologist does. A psychologist will often look at, well, what are you doing wrong? What are the obstacles? And what's the historical pattern? And we look at what's the obstacles. And then we ask directly, well, how could we make that? How could we deliver it? How could we deliver freedom now? Rather than let's look at the past and see what went wrong. So our process is much more quick and the clients move to freedom directly. They see where they're going rather than kind of getting lost in shifting the neurotic patterns that are there. The patterns shift much more dynamically. When you're living a life of freedom and vitality and vibrancy, you're much less likely to be caught in any kind of neuroticism at all. You're much more likely to know who you are, to have greater self-knowledge and deliver that into the world. Makes sense. So on the topic of the process, from a training standpoint, you were going seven stages, and then were you doing something similar to like a five-day evoke? And were you also doing the mentorship as well from the get-go? So we started with the seven stages training. And then what happened was I saw the clients that the advisors weren't getting it. Not getting not the getting, understanding of the seven stages no. and the maturity of money, relationship with money. What are they not getting? Not getting how to deliver the client into freedom. Oh, okay. And they were getting bogged down in counseling skills. The main counseling skill that a registered life planner has is profound empathy and great listening, unconditional positive regard, really just listening. So the, the client feels heard. And often the client feels it's the best conversation they've ever had, the first meeting, because they're really heard. And then the other thing is the, that we're dedicated to the client's freedom. So what happened was I got frustrated and one of the people that I was working with in my training community, I was suggesting to them that they develop this model and they tried this way and that way. And I, and I, it was over a phone call, I remember. And I said, oh, it's so easy. Come on, it's just like this. And I laid it out in about 20 minutes uh -huh. what the design of the evoke process was. And so there we had it. And it was listening, really listening, which deepens trust and makes the bond between the client and an advisor profound. And then the second one was visioning in a way that is astonishing to the client, where there's, where they're delivered into an inspirational view of their life and of the meaning of their life and what they are delivering into the world. And then the third meeting is where all those things that we used to think of as obstacles are addressed in quite in short order. And mostly the advisor doesn't do the work. Mostly it's the advisor facilitating in a coaching kind of way, the client just knocking those obstacles one after another out of the ballpark and coming up with action steps, action steps, action steps that are immediate. So the client is feeling inspirational throughout the whole process. Once the obstacles are resolved, then you're at traditional financial planning. The financial planner has all the skills to design a financial plan, but now it's on target because you know exactly where the client's going, exactly what they're going to do with their life.
So inspiration is a big deal here. Take us down the path of what that really means to people. Because most of our listening audience are not advisors. There may be some, I'm sure. But much of our listening audience is just the average person from any walk of life. Financial means could be from one extreme to the other. How would you encourage one to really look for the inspiration in their lives? Well, I would just say from an advisor standpoint first, if I'm speaking to you, a consumer directly, I am inspired by who you are. I believe in who you are, that you have something extraordinary to bring into the world, that you were born with something extraordinary to bring into the world, and that you've developed a whole series of skills up to this moment where, when I meet you. And I'm really curious about what those skills are and who you really are meant to be. And often when I meet you, that's all hidden. It's hidden inside you. It's hidden from the world. It's hidden certainly from me because who am I to you? You think I'm just a financial guy, but that's how I am. I, I really believe in you and I want you to live that life. So, and I, I think that everybody deserves that kind of support for who they are meant to be, yeah. who they feel they're meant to be. Yes. And then take us through, again, visioning or really developing a vision for your life. So I, I will say, I, I'm going to give a pitch here for, there's a consumer website that we have that I would give a pitch for that's called Life Planning for You. Mm -hmm. And I would get on it and you will see. And you'll see a lot of the questions, a lot of the visioning. And in the second meeting, in the second meeting, if we're working with a client that doesn't have means, first meeting, maybe 10 minutes, the second meeting, maybe 10 minutes, and you do it all in one meeting, really. And in that second meeting, you ask some of the profound questions that I've trained, the heart's core grid, what's known as the three questions, mm -hmm. which I'd be happy to share. If Please do, like. yes. Yeah, well, the three questions, the first one is, if you had all the money you need for the rest of your life, what would you do with your life? So it's almost like you just won the lottery. It's a little bit like going to Disneyland. You're free, you know, and you go sure. and you play and you just have fun. And the second question, and they're done in order. They have to be done in order. The second question is that you only have five to 10 years left to live. You just learned it. What are you going to do? What would you do with your life? How would you shift? So you can see that between the first question, which might have a lot of material things in it, a lot of travel, that the second question comes more meaningful, more likely to have relationships in it and whatever's most profound in your life that hasn't been yet accomplished, you're going to be focused on. And then the third question is the deepest one yet. And that is, it's not what you would do. You, you get the double whammy from the doctor and they tell you not only do you have a terrible illness, but it's come to term and you have only 24 hours left to live. And the question is not what would you do, but what did you miss doing? Who did you not get to be? What did you not get to do? And that's the question more often than not that drives the financial life plan because it's the question of greatest meaning. Who did I not get to be? This is what I was really meant to be. And so what a wonderful thing 
you know, whether you're doing this on your own, uh, you know, through hearing something like this or visiting the website or reading one of the books, or you're going to a financial advisor who's been trained to look at this and focus on who you feel you were really meant to be and go, yeah, let's, let's make it happen. It's time. Life's short. I think we can, we can do this and in short order. And that's what is astonishing to clients. They often have been putting it off and putting it off. So the beginning and the makings and the ingredients for a great vision really start emerging in the three questions. Absolutely. And then you have the Heart's Core Grid. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Heart's Core Grid is another organization, just as the three questions can organize it into things that are more fun and material and, and things that, you know, they're, they're organizing over time, really time priorities. And the, the heart's core grid organizes it into what you feel is close to your heart and heart's core, uh, what you feel you ought to or should do. So sense more of a sense of obligation and responsibility. And then what would be fun to. And, and each organization helps the consumer as it helps the advisor sort through, sift through what's most important. And we usually go for what, what's most important in the heart's core line on the heart's core grid. And the other exercise that I've come to really love is looking at, is imagining that you have all the power, all the freedom to live and live your ideal day every day of the year and live your ideal week every week of the year and live your ideal year. So I love that exercise because it tells me whether you want to work full time or, you know, 12 hours a day as some of you are working, or you want to work six hours a day. And that's a relatively easy thing to give you, not six hours a day, but if you're working 12 and you want to work six, it's not that difficult giving you 10 hours a day and giving you two hours free. And that can feel like an enormous blessing an enormous gift. And you can leave the office enormously inspired because often if you're not feeling like you're a slave to the work that you're doing, you have more energy for everything, including you're much more efficient and vital at your work. So you deliver your work much better. So there are, there are these tricks that we have that, are, that come out of these exercises that can be delivered immediately. And then we look at the things that you might have thought would take 10 or 15 years, and we look to deliver them in one to three. Which has to be pretty exciting for a client. Just amazing, Mark, as you know. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. Aries, any questions? Absolutely. I got a ton of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was just waiting for my turn. So, George, you had mentioned, especially with the, with the third question, and one of the questions being, who, who did I not get to be? And one of the things that you've shared with us today in our group meeting was, you know, one of the things that you knew is that who you were and you're an artist, you, you, you're a poet. At what point did you know that, that that was truly who you were and how can, you know, how can people, what steps can they take to just get clarity around who they really are? So I knew that I was a poet, even though I, I'd hardly written a poem, probably when I was... 17 or 18 and I took a course in literature and I realized even though my skills were mathematical I realized that in literature one could actually one had a voice and would one could say what one felt and one believed and what one knew to be true and could have an influence and I realized I wanted to do that I was passionate about wanting to do that 
but I'd known that I wanted to live a profound spiritual life from age three, when I'd had these experiences that were unbelievable, visionary experiences. And I knew all along, you could see as you met people who seemed to be living, who said they were living, in those days it was living in a Christian community, good Christian lives, and you realized looking at them that they pretty much went to church on Sundays and that was pretty much it as far as I could see, that they didn't live a profound life. So I knew that there was something different that I wanted to live. And I could see from school, both from the high school that I went to and then the college I went to, that were incredible academic schools, that you hardly even studied these people, that they weren't leaders, the ones that lived these inspired lives. So I knew I had to do something different. And I didn't know yet how, but when I would tell people that I wanted to paint and write for a living, people said to me, well, why don't you do graphics? You know, you can make money out of graphics. Or they say, why don't you go down to Cape Cod and paint landscapes? Okay, well, I, I wanted to paint things that were profound, that would make a difference. And so people just didn't understand at all, and then they wanted me to make money out of it, and that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to do something extraordinary. And similarly with meditation, nobody understood meditation in the 60s. There was a very small group of people that were into it, and then everybody else thought it was very odd and squishy and you know touchy-feely. And they didn't get that it bring, brings profound energy, it brings profound depth, it brings integrity, it brings authenticity. It delivers longevity now, we're discovering. It delivers emotional intelligence. It reduces stress, all of these things. I wanted to live it because it felt like it delivered profoundly what human nature, the depths of human nature. So I knew that from early on. And there was no avenue out there. And I had no mentors. I, I had to, the mentors I had were William Blake, and who died 100 years before, some spiritual figures who died 100 years before and earlier. I had to take philosophers and religious teachers and poets and painters. So you knew that without actually having done any any of that work? It, it was just, there was a desire that was within? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I had a passion. And well, I'd done, I clearly done some of my own kind of visionary work. I remember in eighth grade standing at a window and looking out on the trees out of my, in my home in Ohio and looking out and looking at the trees and I imagining that they were lines in my brain. I mean, that sounds weird, kind of weird, but I was bringing what was external, internal. And then I put myself into a state, a trance-like state about living inside my brain in that visionary kind of way. So I did little experiments on my own. And I'm sure many of us have done experiments like that when we were kids. But I loved those experiments. And I thought, this is the way to live. This is, this is teaching me something new that nobody's talking about. You know, it's not all those commercials about smoking Marlboros and <laughs> driving Mustangs. And, you know, this is real. This is profound. Sure. Yeah. So in one of our episodes, and, and Mark had mentioned this, just the, the term inspiration or to inspire, you know, for, from our standpoint, when we define it, it's being living a life that's spirit-led. What does inspiration mean to you? Or, or even being led by the spirit? Right. I can understand that frame, and I bet you guys talk beautifully about it, and I haven't listened to it, so I don't know. I don't know it. 
I want to live authentically. I want to live with authenticity. I want to be as close to who I am in every moment of my life as I possibly can be. And the more deeply I've done spiritual practice, the more subtle I'm listening to you, to wind when I'm in nature, to the light when the sun rises over the pond that I live on, to my kids when they cry and and are frustrated. So the more depth that I have accomplished in meditative practice, the more awake and aware I am to all of those things, and the more authenticity I bring to everything that I do. So I want to live with that authenticity in every moment of my life. So to me, rather than being spirit-driven, I think right now, the way I would frame it, I might have framed it like that earlier, but the way I frame it is being awake and present in every moment of my life. So it's practicing in my meditation. I am largely practicing being completely present so I don't miss a thing. And of course, you miss a lot. We're all fallible. <laughs> We're all, you know, we all get DNA that's going this way, that way, and the other way. But that's the practice is to sharpen that ability to really be here. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thing that, that caught my attention too, or that really resonated with me was you had talked about asking yourself that question, like, what do you want to teach your kids, right? And, and you had mentioned, well, you want to teach them to live freely and live to live their best life. And some thoughts that crossed my mind is, would you say that that is the, the purpose of life then, is to, to fully experience freedom and, and live, you know, like, like you mentioned, authentically, like expand, expand on that? Yeah, I think to me that is. That's what it's all about. And at the same time, we can see it now with this terrible threat to the planet Earth that we've, we've brought about and that there's all these powerful forces that are denying. And when 97% of scientists say it's so clear. And then so we have an obligation as well to each other and to the planet and to all living species to bring as great freedom, as much freedom as we can bring to them, and as much particularly freedom from suffering as we can possibly bring to them. And if we can bring that, we talked about it in the workshop we did today about having a basic level of support, of economic support for everyone. And if we have that level where we're not scrambling with reactivity, with anger, with resentment, with blame. We can think and deliver into the world who we most want to be. We're each born with this incredible authenticity, and then we lose it as our jobs tell us who we're supposed to be, or as the media and marketing tell us who we're supposed to be. So I think we're meant to discover that and to keep it alive, not just discover it once, but discover it in every day of our lives, to keep rediscovering who we're meant to be and keep bringing it again and again and again into the world, keep challenging ourselves to deepen and deepen and deepen and then deliver it and deliver it and deliver it. And part of that delivering is seeing the person who you happen to meet and seeing them 
and realizing that they've got something extraordinary to deliver into the world. Whoever they are, you've met them on the subway. Right. You've met them in the line in the grocery store. Everybody has this extraordinary gift to see into that. Wow, what an incredible life. Yeah. And and that kind of starts with ourselves, though. We got to see that in, in within us, right? Because I, I remember when I first came across your work, it was in an article in one of the the industry publications, and it was about your evoke process. And it was the, the, the picture that you painted about taking people through this process and helping them live their most inspired life. And I know that definitely resonated with me. And I think that the reason why is like you'd mentioned is because that's kind of the purpose that we have here in, in this life is, is to live that out. So really appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing and definitely the impact that you've had on, on my life as well as all, everyone else that, that hopefully we're touching. Thank you, Aries. Thank you. Thank you, Aries. Good questions. Thank you, George. Great answers. <laughs> so in wrapping up, I'm going to pull a little rabbit out of the Tim Ferriss hat here. And that is, if you could design a billboard, what's one of the major interstates running through your area? Is it? Well, 495. 495. There yeah. we go. Let's go with 495. So if you had a billboard on 495 to shout out to the world about this work, about people living inspired lives, what would that billboard say? I'm not sure, Mark. I'm not sure because I'm not sure how deeply people would take it. Yeah. So it's hard to do it in a billboard for me. It's a very good question. The billboard frame and phrase that I've used in the industry, Mm -hmm. I like a lot, which is to model integrity and deliver freedom. And I think that touches a lot. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that to have that billboard up would stun people. Mm -hmm. Model integrity deliver freedom. Yes. Good. And one more thing. We haven't talked at all about my my new book. No, I was I was going there. Oh, you Don't are. worry. I'll let you, oh, I'll let yeah. You there. We're okay. not. No, Good. we're oh. not ending this podcast <laughs> okay. until I'm in your hands. Yes. I'm in your hands. So, yeah. you've done a lot of great works in terms of writing. And I know your latest book now, The Golden Civilization, which Aries and I and several of our colleagues and others in the community here in Southern California joined you today for this workshop to talk a little bit about it and get a little bit of a groundswell and excitement. Tell us a little bit about that work. Well, the book is coming out on March 4th, and many people listening to this may, that date might have already passed, but it's called A Golden Civilization and The Map of Mindfulness. And one of the things that it attempts to do is describe a golden civilization which I believe we all deserve. This isn't just about us living individual lives. We can't live those lives of authenticity. If we have autocracy, fascism, totalitarian governments, if we have bullies in power, if we have hierarchies of power that spread propaganda, we always grew up thinking propaganda came from governments. And what we're finding now is it can come just as powerfully from corporate forces, but nobody's really talking about it as propaganda. That's what it is. And we, you know, the amazing and wonderful thing about growing up here in the West is that we live in democracies. And as citizens of democracies, we can establish whatever freedoms we want. And it's time we did that. 
we've been living a life that is relatively codependent with our politicians. And so we end up resenting, blaming, and complaining about them not delivering what we want. It's time for us to take back that power because they've given it away to billionaires and institutional forces. It's time for us to take that power back and claim it and claim it in a wonderful, loving way. And the book is filled with wild, unusual ideas, including a challenge to how we think about time and space. The map of mindfulness completely remaps our structure of what we think time and space looks like, which is one of my, I think, really inventive, most inventive ideas. You're going to love it when you see it. And it's all about the present moment, and it's all about virtue and bringing spirit and into civilization. But it's filled with other ideas in the economic sphere, in the sphere of media. How do we have a media that's genuinely free and not run by powerful forces that tells us the truth? How do we have politicians who really are serving us, democratic citizens, and not serving institutions of power? How do we know that truth is being spoken? So all of this is in a golden civilization. So my book is about that. But what I'm excited about even more is what we did together, you and I together with a group of 20 people, where we talked about a golden civilization shouldn't come from me. I'm a thinker, you know, and I, I hope that I inspire people around it. But I mean, a golden civilization comes from all of us and from us thinking together and creating a participative democracy that delivers great freedom. Yes. So I think that we really deserve the democratic freedoms we thought we had, and we need to strengthen them all. I think in the next generation, in this generation, we need to deliver freedoms like freedom from corruption and freedom from war. I think it's time that we deliver those freedoms and stop getting lost in what politicians say can and can't be done. In life planning, we create a powerful vision and then we deliver it. That's what I'm excited about. We're creating golden civilization conversations now all over the world and creating networks of people delivering these conversations all over the world. And that's the way democracy should be. Inspired, filled with love, filled with passion, filled with curiosity, filled with engagement. And we owe it. It's not politicians that we're meant to serve. They're meant to serve us. Institutions and corporations, we are not meant to be slaves of. They are meant to be our servants, delivering to us freedoms. They are all meant to be fiduciaries to us, trusted fiduciaries to us. It's time we made that happen. We're at an incredible moment where we can communicate all together, all across the earth with all of our social media, it's time to put democracy on the map everywhere and to deliver freedom everywhere with great integrity in everything. Just one more, one more image here that's quite amazing. You know, in NASA, when they send these satellites, the latest ones, the ones that go out to Saturn are called Cassini satellites, right? And they deliver these satellites, they go out and they discover Saturn's rings, right? And if you are off by inches for every mile that you go, will you make it to Saturn's rings? The answer is no, no. So NASA has a term for their systems, and that term is integrity. So the integrity of the systems that NASA uses for their satellites has to be impeccable, right? Otherwise, it's not going to work. You know, we've had the blow up of the one Apollo. You know, if your system's not impeccable, 
it ain't going to work. Well, isn't the planet Earth and isn't democracy and isn't a golden civilization a far more complex system than a simple satellite that's just like a weapon going out to Saturn's rings? Don't we deserve and isn't it time to create systems that have as great integrity as Cassini satellite for democracy, for civilization. It's time, and we can do it. This is the amazing thing. We are a democracy. We can make this happen. So I'm really excited about this period for planet Earth that we are creating. This is the time for us to create the golden civilization and then for all of our progeny, all of our children and our children's children to live and be creative and make amazing things happen, generation after generation, all across the world, in all the different environments that the human species occupies, and for all the species that are out there, and for planet Earth itself. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we are looking forward to that Golden Civilization book. Thank you. And can't wait till we can read it. A final thought, a closing thought from you, George. Oh, oh, well, thank you, guys. I mean, this was really wonderful to talk with you about all of this. I don't know. I think, I think finding our authenticity, self-knowledge is another term for it. Wisdom is another term for it. The, the model that we've had for economics has been largely driven by self-interest. And that's a lovely model. Adam Smith designed it, articulated it. But... What we really want, I think, back to Ari's question earlier about authenticity and living who we're meant to be, that generative power in economics of self-interest needs to be held within a larger frame, a larger circle of self-knowledge, of wisdom, of all of our virtues, of our authenticity, of modeling integrity and delivering freedom. So my final word is for everyone to look at what are their greatest values? How do they really want to live in the world? And, and claim it. Claim it for yourselves. And claim it for all of us, for society, for your neighbors, for all of civilization. Wonderful. And thank you so much for showing us the way. We appreciate it. On behalf of not only Aries and I, but our listening audience, and so we're going to put in the show notes links to the book and some of the other support for the financial life planning process. The website, as you referred to, and Life Planning for You book is another one, I believe that's for the consumer, correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So those will all be available directly for purchase and such. I'd put particularly the lifeplanningforyou.com website. I mean, you could do Kinder Institute as well. And the agoldencivilization.com Website, website for, as well for yes. conversations yes yeah beautiful right. well with that we thank you again it's been wonderful and we look forward to a pretty exciting future wonderful my pleasure All right. thank you some of the concepts and tools used in the process of helping you discover a more balanced and inspired life are provided by the kinder institute money quotient and the strategic coach these may be referenced throughout different episodes of the podcast, and you can learn more about each of them in our show notes at hwph.org. You can also find more information about the work Mark and Aries do at sandiegowealth.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter.
Twitter and LinkedIn and available directly via email with feedback, questions and more at us at hwph.org. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>